I had preached three solid sermons that weekend, and at the end of the, the 11 o'clock service, I finished up, I put my stuff away, I went home, hung out with the family that day, took a nap, slept like a baby that night, and then Monday morning I came into work. And when I came into work, when I opened my office door, I saw that dreaded red light blinking on my office phone. That meant there was a message. Now here's how it usually works, just in my experience. If you have a dreaded red light blinking after a weekend that you preach, it's either someone saying, great job, or someone with some points to make. And, and nine times out of ten, it's someone wanting to emphasize a point. Thank you for doing that, and thank you for doing that instead of a drive-by shooting at the end of the service when you're bagged out and tired. So I listened to the message, and it was five minutes long. Five minutes I will not get back in my life. It wasn't a criticism of anything I had said. Uh, in fact, it was really a criticism of what we wear here at Cornwall Church, the way we dress. Really, for those who are on this stage, uh, what they wear and what they dress. dress. Uh, 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 I'll give you uh, the gist of the convo. Pastors need to be in a suit, well-shined shoes, no denim allowed. Men's hair must be short. Women's hair must be long. And then they quote 1 Corinthians 11. Actually, they misquote it. Then they said the men's shirt must be a button-down shirt with a collar and tucked in on, with the worship team. No tennis shoes, no tattoos, at least that are visible, misquoting another uh, passage of Scripture. And then you can't have any piercings if you're a male. If you're female, the piercings can only be stylish earrings. And I'm like, one person's style is another person's train wreck. Am I right? And, I'm, and then an emphasis, wrapped it up with an emphasis on no denim, five minutes. And as I listened to it, I just rolled my eyes, you know. When I come into conversations like this or conflicts like this, one of the thing, things I do is I ask myself three questions. And we'll talk more about them at the end of the teaching. Uh, but the first question is, did Jesus model this? And the last time I checked, Jesus wore the robes of the day when he'd go into the synagogue. So the answer to that's No. Um, did the disciples, after the resurrection, practice or model this? Know what we see in the New Testament church, in the early church, everything that we see, they just wore their regular robes, and then they'd actually go to work, the people who would come to church. We'll talk more about that pretty soon. Last but not least, did the New Testament church practice this? And the answer is no. So basically what it was, was this person giving me their opinion, and what it really boiled down to was this thing called legalism. Max Lucado defined legalism this way. He said, legalism has no pity on people. It makes my opinion your burden, my opinion your boundary, my opinion your obligation. I like how Chuck Swindoll said it. He said, legalism is the establishment of standards, a list of do's and don'ts. Righteousness defined by people, listen to this, misusing God as the source of the standard. Legalist standards come from culture, personal preference, and wait for it, here it comes, tradition. Yep. Criticism is the primary motivation. So that phone call, that person was wanting their opinion to become my boundary, uh, my burden, and my obligation. So such is what we're going to talk about today. Welcome to church. <laughs> if you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this. Legalism is the silent killer of a church. Legalism is the silent killer killer of the church. 
Well, God's got a lot to say about that as we take a look at Jesus throwing down with the poster kids of legalism, uh, the Jewish leadership, and the Pharisees. We're going to be hanging out in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. So turn to chapter 5. Let me set the scene for what's going on. Jesus is in his first year of his earthly ministry. He's done amazing, amazing things in, in, in Jerusalem, in Samaria, and in Galilee. And so he comes into Jerusalem for a festival. And it's at this time that he's going to throw down with the Pharisees. He's going to address the trappings of religion versus the freedom found in him. So he comes into Jerusalem and he's going to go to a, a very specific pool. We're going to talk about that. And he's going to meet an invalid. That's the setup for the story. So with that, a couple theologians I leaned into. First is a guy named Eli Eisenberg, Dr. Eli Eisenberg. He's uh, with the Hebrew Bible Center. He's written a whole bunch of stuff on the Jewishness of Jesus. It's really good. Uh, I leaned into an organization called the Biblical Archaeological Society. I quote them a lot here. They've done so much stuff with uh, archaeology that supports findings in the Bible and things of that nature. And then last but not least is my hero, Dr. Chuck Swindoll, who's had one of the biggest impacts on me as a pastor. So with that, warning up front... There's a lot of turbulence on this flight, okay? We're going to be going high, we're going to be going low, we're going to be going all over the place. Strap yourself in. There are so many theological nuggets in this. Put your trays in the upright and locked position, and let's roll. John 5, verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Okay, these things, these things. Jesus had just, a few months earlier, had just turned water into wine. He had just healed a nobleman's son simply by saying, your son is healed. And he steps into Jerusalem for one of the feasts. We don't know which feast it is, but it's important. Because here's the thing, whenever you see Jesus tied to a feast and they say which feast it is, look it up. Let me give you an example. John chapter 8, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the, the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's there where he says, I am the light of the world. Why is that important? Because the high priest during the Feast of Tabernacles would light this huge candelabra. It would put out so much light. And the, the high priest would talk about the, the Messiah is coming. He's coming to bring light into the darkness. So it's important. Here, though, we don't know which feast it is. It just says that Jesus is in Jerusalem. Let's keep on going. Verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda. Circle that. we got to talk about that. Bethesda, having five porticos. So we need to talk about it because it's extremely important. One of the things I love to do when I teach, when I preach, is I like to talk about looking at things through the eyes of the Jewish people. And this one's an important one. Your, your translation says Bethesda, some say Bethsaida, some say Bethzatha. This pool is important with respect to Jesus. I think it's important with respect to the state of Israel's faith at that time. And it's very important with the Roman Greco influence on Israel. So Bethesda, Bethsaida, it means house of mercy, house of grace, or house of outpouring in Hebrew. And, and, and what we see in the Gospel of John are two pools. The first pool is the pool of Siloam. It's in John chapter 9, and it's called a mikveh. It's a ceremonial cleansing pool. It's attached to the temple. Not so with this pool. Biblical scholars have been doing this for many, many years until uh, a while back, uh, several started saying, wait a second, we got some archaeological evidence. This is a different type of pool. You see, this pool, I would argue, is a pagan pool. 
has nothing to do with the Jewish religion. It's, it's this pool where people would go, they'd get in the water thinking it would heal them, but there's more to it than that. You see, the Roman Greco world, they worshipped a bunch of little G gods. One of those gods is a guy named Asclepius. Asclepius, if you see a statue of him, he's all buff. He's got a stick with a snake wrapped around it. It's where our medical field gets a stick with, gets, you know, their, their symbol, that stick with a snake on it. And so they would, they would worship this guy named Asclepius. Now, Asclepius, there were 400 Asclepian health spas throughout the Roman Empire. I would argue that this is one of those. I think the text is going to show us that. We truly don't know, but I think there's pretty good evidence for that. So the Jewish people would come there. The, the non-Jewish people would come there. The waters were supposed to have healing powers. And the issue is that the Jewish people were looking at this place for healing instead of Yahweh himself. Look what happens next, verses 3 and 4. In these, the five porticos of Bethesda, lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Okay, hang on just a second. Because now then, if you look at your text, if those of you who have your Bible, some of you don't have the rest of verse 3 and all of verse 4. You just have a little footnote. Some of you, like me, are going to have words in brackets. And that's important. Let's talk about that. Okay, so the words in brackets. Okay. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. So you had all these sick, sick people there. Waiting for the moving of the waters, verse 4, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Let's talk about those brackets. Here at Cornwall Church, we believe 100% that you can believe in this. You can believe in your Bible. Forty authors over 1,600 years with one main theme, God's love for us. He creates us, we fall, he redeems us. It's all about Jesus and it's all about here. We believe in the inerrancy, that means without error, in the infallibility, that means it's incapable of being wrong, of the original manuscripts. Let me say that again. The original manuscripts. Why you can trust your Bible is specifically because of the brackets. Because what happened, those words right there that I had just read, they weren't in the original manuscript. In fact, they were added like 300 plus years later after John had written this gospel by a well-meaning scribe. That's why you can trust your Bible because if you don't have it in there, there's a footnote. And if you do, it's in brackets. So trust your Bible. It means a deviation from the original manuscript. Okay, so back to this. So why the brackets? We talked about that. So it's important to read your footnotes. So back to this. If an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons. So if that didn't happen, if an angel of the Lord didn't go in there, if it was just a, a, a well-meaning scribe who was uh, writing about a tradition, how did the water stir? I am so glad you asked. One of two reasons. One of two ways. Either there was an underground spring that had high mineral content. How many of you guys have ever been to a spa? You know, you've been to a health spa, and they got the mineral water. Yeah, you go in there, and it smells all weird, and it's all bubbly and nice. Or what could be, you know what these 400 Asclepian health spas? There was a pipe system, and the pagan priest or a worker would pull a lever that would open a pipe, and it would cause the water to stir. Now it's starting to make sense. We simply don't know. But... Interesting at that. So back to the story. At this house of grace, this house of mercy, the sickest people couldn't be healed. Enter Jesus, the hero of this story. Oh, I love Jesus. This is, this is such a cool story. Verses 5 and 6. Here we go. 
A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Circle that, underline that, emphasize that. That's important. A man who was there, was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? 38 years. 38 years. We don't know if he was born an invalid. I doubt it because when we see that someone was born with something, they, the writer says that. 38 years he's been an invalid. One of the things I love about the Bible, you guys know I love the Old Testament. I preach a lot out of the Old Testament, but how the Old Testament and New Testament come together, and I think this is one of those places. Go back with me to the Exodus account. You know, God through Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Uh, the people are released. How long do they wander in the desert? 40 years. Two years into their wandering, they come up to the edge of the promised land. Moses sends out 12 spies. And for 40 days, they walk around the promised land. And they're spying the land out. They bring back some of the bounty from the land. And when they get back, they say, this, this land is a land truly flowing with milk and honey. That means it's, it's a good land. But then 10 of the spies say, but there's a problem. There are these really big warriors, one eyebrow, no neck, bad breath. We can't take them. They're too tough for us. And those 10 convince everybody else that they can't do it. And God is angry by that. And so he kerspankles them. For the next, wait for it, here it comes, 38 years. They'd walk in the desert as spiritual invalids. I don't think it's coincidence that this invalid has been an invalid for 38 years. And I think we're going to see there's a spiritual issue there too. But don't miss this. Don't miss this. When, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew, so Jesus knew the man. Jesus knew him. Think about it. Jesus was probably 30, 31 years old right at this time. And this man is at least 38. He's probably older than that. We know in John chapter 1, verse 3, that through him, Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Jesus created him. Jesus knew him. Jesus chose him. He walks into a pool or an area. And there are invalids all over the place. They're sick, the lame, the blind, blind, the lame. They're all over the place. And what does he do is he just heals one. Jesus didn't heal everyone he came into contact with. And that's important for us because we pray in our time, God heals in his. And as Christ followers, when we go through stuff, we have to understand that we will get healing no matter what on the other side of, of the eternity. But God is under no moral obligation to answer us and answer the prayers the way we think he should. So Jesus heals him and him only. And he asks a question. You want to get well? And I'm like, come on, Rabbi. Of course he wants to get well. He's been an invalid for 38 years. Really. Have you guys ever had someone in your life where whenever you talk to them, they're talking about their latest illness or their latest thing going on? Hey, how's it going? Let me tell you about my festering sore on my toe. And then they show you. The next week you see him, hey, how are things? I got the Rona for the seventh time. I lost my sense of smell and taste again. It's like, come on, flip the script. Their identity comes from their burden. This, has so, this, this story has so many nuggets. Here's a good nugget to take from it. Your identity, your identity comes from Christ, not from your burden. Your identity comes from Christ, 
not from your burden. It seems like this man, the poor guy, his identity is that he's an invalid. That's all he's known as, is an invalid. If you're that person that always wants to talk about the thing that's wrong with you, maybe it's time to flip the script. It's another sermon another time. So Jesus asked the question, do you want to get well? Look at his answer or the lack thereof, verses 7 and 8. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming another steps down before me, Jesus said to him, and underline this, Get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Let me say that again. Get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Star that because that's going to be important in verse 14. He says, I have no man to help me. Seems like there are two types of people who go to this pool. You've got those who want to do, you know, the health spa. Hey, let's go to the spa. Let's get a bubble bath. And then there are others who truly have no hope. This man is one who has no hope. And my heart breaks for him. If he's going to the pool for Asclepion, the, the god of benevolence, the little g god of benevolence, the god of health, he's not going to get healed. But Jesus steps in and does more than, than give him hope. He does a radical transformation in his life. Have you ever noticed how Jesus does that? That radical transformation in your life? Look at this. When you receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord, He takes up residence in your heart through the Holy Spirit. And, and, and as you receive Him, you say, I, I want to walk away from my past. I want to follow that path of Jesus. I want to repent and follow Jesus. And you surrender and surrender and surrender some more. And He starts working on your heart. And you get this transformation. After so many years... You stand and you can do an about face and look back at that time when you repented of your sins and received him. And you should see a radical transformation somewhere along the line. But if you're just looking back and all you see is a minor correction, maybe it's time to go back to that point. Are you willing? Jesus tends to bring chaos into order. He does it. He does it by dying for our sins. And so the chaos of sin is brought into order by Jesus. The chaos in our lives is brought into order by Jesus. The chaos of sickness here is called into order by the creator of life, Jesus. And he gives this sick, poor man who doesn't even have a name. Get up, your mat, get up pick up your mat, and walk. Notice here he didn't command him to go to the pool and wash. Think about this. John chapter 9. Read John chapter 9 this week. Jesus heals a man born blind. And when he heals him, he says, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. He doesn't say that here. He just says, pick up your mat and get out of here. That's another reason why I think it's a, it's a pagan place. He says, get up and leave. Verses 9 and 10. Okay, now remember our main thought. Legalism is the silent killer of the church. What's going to happen now in this story is that Jesus is going to start a three-year throwdown with the leadership of the Jewish faith, and it's going to lead him to the cross. Okay, so here we go. Verse 9, immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. Circle that. We got to talk about that. It was the Sabbath on that day, verse 10. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it's the Sabbath. And it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. you got to be kidding me. The man is an invalid, and he's walking. It's a miracle. 
and thus would be a battle of legalism, a battle of God's love. So let's talk about this whole Sabbath thing. I want to spend a couple minutes in this but because this is where we truly see some legalism show up. I've, I've seen it in my own life. I'm, I have legalist tendencies. And, and I got to tell you, it's, it's how God has wrestled on my heart to, to help me in it. So let's talk about the Sabbath. Go back to Genesis chapter 2. You can read it on your, your own. God creates in six days. On the seventh day, he takes a rest. It's not because God needed a nap. No. What it is, is a foreshadowing of a gift. That foreshadowing of the gift is a gift to the Jewish people. Okay, let me say that again. It's a gift to the Israelites, to the Jewish people. The Sabbath is a gift, okay? Why do I say that? From Adam, in Genesis chapter 2, all the way through to, to Moses, there's never a mention of the Sabbath. Not one word. We don't see any of the patriarchs, any of the patriarchs, keeping a Sabbath. Why is that important? Because when you take a principle from the Old Testament, you want it to be a principle that covers through the time of the Old Testament. This one doesn't. This is a gift to the Jewish people. So you fast forward to Moses. God gives him the Mosaic Law. He gives him the Ten Commandments. Fourth commandment is, is basically from Friday at 6 p.m. to Saturday at 6 p.m. is going to be a day off. It's a Sabbath day. It's a Sabbath, Shabbat. And God says there are a handful of things you can do and can't do on that day. Well, then guess what? Enter some well-meaning men who would add a bunch of rules to all the commands to all the Mosaic law, and to this specific command, they had 39 man-made rules. 39 rules. 39 rules. And guess what rule number 39 was? You can't pick up a pallet. You can't pick up a mat. You can't pick up, listen to this, a burden. That's what it is in Hebrew. It's a burden. So, Jesus goes to the cross, he dies, he's buried, he's resurrected. We're going to talk about it in a second, how he cancels the, the written code. And, and, and when he does that, when, when, when he does that, it is finished. It is done. And Jesus is now our new Sabbath. Jesus is our new Sabbath. Rule number 39, you can't carry a burden. Go back to Matthew 11. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy, burdened, laden, same word, and I will give you rest. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is our new Sabbath. Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Jesus, Jesus is our new Sabbath. So it begs a question. If Jesus is our Sabbath, does that mean that the Jewish Sabbath of Saturday is now the Christian Sabbath of Sunday? I'm glad you asked. You guys are asking such great questions. Let's talk about that, but let's not have it be my opinion. Let's look at Scripture. If you go to Colossians chapter 2, let's look at verses 16 and 17. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Right before this, in Colossians 2, verse 14, Paul writes, that the, the, the law, the written code, is crucified on the cross. Jesus fulfills the law. Then you get to verses 16 and 17. Listen to this. Therefore, because the law has been slammed against the cross, therefore do not let anyone judge you. Circle that. 
Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or what? Shalom Shabbat, a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Paul lumps Sabbath keeping with the dietary laws. And praise God he does because I love me some bacon. I love pulled pork. We don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. He lumps the Sabbath with that. Now, is it good to take a day off? Absolutely. It's good to take two days off. It, it, we're tied to our phones. We're, our, our lives are so busy. That's a good thing. But in Romans chapter 14, verses 5 and 6, read it on your own. Paul basically says one person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. So don't lord it over others about which day is what. And that's important. So... Let's go to the, the New Testament church. Think about the New Testament church. And let's talk about what day they met. Because here's the thing. Acts chapter 2 says they met every day. And when you look in the New Testament, it, finally in Revelation chapter 1 verse 10, it, it, it refers to Sunday. There's no word for Sunday in the New Testament. It's called, uh, in, in Revelation 1 verse 10, it's called the Lord's Day. But Everywhere else is called the first day. So it's the first day. And they would meet the first day, second day, third day, fourth. They'd meet every day. And guess what? When they met every day, they would be wearing the regular clothes because all the way until 321 AD for nearly 300 years, it was a work day. So they wear their work clothes. They go to church. They go to work. And then they'd probably go to church again. So 321 AD, Constantine ruler of the Roman Empire, says Sunday is going to be a day off. I want all of the businesses closed on Sunday. Everything's closed. That's where we get that tradition. But yet we still fight in the church. Oh, you got you to meet on this special. You got to meet on Saturday. Well, wait a second. Hold on just a second. In Acts, the whole book of Acts, if you guys can recall from when we taught our series on Acts, it's all about how, Judas, how Jesus completes Judaism. So whenever you see the disciples on a Saturday meeting at the synagogue, they're evangelizing the Jewish people and the Gentile converts to Judaism. It doesn't matter what day. Let's let Scripture speak. We should worship God every day of the week. But to say it's a specific day and then say we got to wear certain things and do certain things or not do certain things, and we add a list of 39 rules, we become just like the Pharisees. That was me. I was that. Oh, man, I love to break it off into people's heads. It's freedom in Christ versus the trapping of religion. We don't lord it over someone. When we do, that's legalism, and it kills a church. All right, back to John. John chapter 5. Let's keep going. So the man picks up his mat, and the Pharisees stop him, verses 11 and 13. But he, the invalid, answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who's this man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed didn't know. He didn't know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. The man didn't know it was Jesus, and he probably wouldn't have said it anyway, because if you get caught doing what he was doing, breaking rule number 39, at worst you could be stoned. At best, you'd be excommunicated. you lose your life. 
The issue was that it was a man-made structure that was getting in the way of God's work. God, Jesus is so good. The leaders were ignoring Jesus the healer and focusing on Jesus the offender. And this is where the throwdown would happen throughout the rest of his ministry. And he slips away. He started a controversy. And then verse 14 pops up. Look at verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. He said to him, Behold, you've become well. Do not sin anymore. Underline that. That's important. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. So Jesus says, don't sin anymore. Remember I said, John chapter 9, read it later this week. So let's talk about this blind man Jesus heals. Uh, Jesus and the the disciples come up to this blind man, and the disciples say, Rabbi, this, this guy's blind. He's been blind since birth. Is he blind because of sin in his life? Is he blind because of his parents having sin? That was the idea at the time. And Jesus said, no, he's blind so that the glory of God could be revealed. And then Jesus heals him. Not so here. And this is where, again, biblical scholars have been doing this. Was he born with sin? Was he, I mean, we're all born with sin. But, but is there something he did that caused him to be an invalid? Because Jesus says, go and sin no more. This is why I think this place is a pagan pool. Because think about it. This invalid was at a pool worshiping a Greek god for health and healing. Not Jesus. The man had succumbed to idol worship. It's like Jesus is saying, listen, stay focused on me. Worship me. Don't worship those little G gods because I tell you something worse is going to happen. An eternity of pain and suffering is going to happen without me. I don't want to gloss over those words. Jesus found him in the temple. He found him. Jesus knew this man. Jesus is not bound by time. He doesn't bind himself with time. He is timeless. He sees the future. He sees the past. He lives in the present. He's he's timeless. And he knew this man. He knew this man would be an invalid. It didn't surprise him. And that's good for you and that's good for me. Because Jesus knows your suffering. Jesus knows your suffering. He knows your suffering. And because Jesus knows your suffering, what that means is, that you are not a surprise to Jesus, that your predicament's not a surprise to Jesus, that anything you're going to, he will hold it all together. Colossians 1 verse 17 says that. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He will walk with you through any valley and every valley. He knows your suffering, and he knew this man's suffering. 2,000 years ago, he does it to this day. He's going to go into the future and do the same. You know, in Isaiah, remember in Isaiah, God's talking to Isaiah to the Jewish people, and he says, not if you go through the fire, and if you walk through the waters, I'm going to be with you. He says, when? We're all going to go through it, and Jesus knows it, and he's going to walk with us. i got to keep going for time's sake. Verses 15 and 16. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things when? On the Sabbath. Yeah, on the Sabbath. So when this invalid told them who had made him well, it wasn't to glorify Jesus. It was to save his own skin. And I want to give this guy grace because what he's been through, he gets healed and all of a sudden he's getting grief from religious folk. 
from religious leaders? Wow. So what's the point that Jesus is going to make? Man, you guys are asking once again great questions. Verses 17 and 18. But he, Jesus, answered them, the, the Jewish leaders, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, remember those 39 rules, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Circle that, underline it, put it in the front of your Bible, put stars around it. So many theological nuggets in this. Can you guys feel the turbulence we're in? Because there are so many nuggets. Jesus is God. You know, I got a lot of non-Christian friends from my military days, and we talk a lot. We get a lot of good spiritual conversations. And usually what comes up in a conversation with them or a skeptic is, you know, Jesus in the Bible, he never says that he's God. And in all actuality, they're right. He never stands up and says, I am Yahweh in those words. But understanding the historical context, the cultural context, and the words that Jesus would use, everyone would know that he's saying, I am equal with God. I am God. We're going to blow through, through these verses real quick. John 10, verse 30. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Jesus is God. John 8, verse 58. Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. And what he's saying, the Jewish, the Jewish leaders would get that. Jesus is saying, I existed before Father Abraham. And when he would say those words, I am, it would be a reflection from Exodus 3.14. God talking to Moses. Jesus is God. John 1 verse 1. John talks about Jesus' deity. The whole book of John is about the deity of Jesus. And he talks about the word, which is Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is God. Blow down 13 more verses to verse 14, because that's where we get the idea of the incarnation, big church word that simply means God became flesh. God walked the dirt in the name of Jesus. So here we go, John 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God. We could go on and on and on. There's so many others there. Thomas, when, it, when he sees Jesus in his resurrected state, doubting Thomas, he says, my Lord and my God, and Jesus doesn't go, whoa, 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 whoa. hang on, T-Dog, wait a second, let me son of man explain this to you. I'm the son of man, I'm not really God. No, he doesn't do that. Jesus is God. The apostle Paul writes a letter to a guy named Titus, a pastor named Titus, and he says, I eagerly await for the appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The disciples worship Jesus in his resurrected state as God. And here's one last one. With the Jewish people, and in, really in the ancient Far East or Near East, when they would look at a father or son, the son is an extension of the father. They're not distinct. Jesus is God. And with that, you can trust him. You can always trust him. So let me land this plane. Remember our main thought today, legalism is the silent killer of the church. And I want to be very, very clear. We need to know God's word. We need to stand on God's truth. And we need to speak it, but in love. I've shared these words from Pastor Brian Loritz a few times here. And so if you've heard them, just go with me on it. But it fits so well when he compares this legalism thing versus grace. 
Legalism says, I'm good because of what I do. Grace says, I'm good because of what Christ has done. Legalism says, I do, therefore I'm accepted and approved. Grace, God's amazing grace says, I'm accepted and approved, therefore I do. Legalism focuses on behaviors, opinions, and tradition. Grace focuses on a heart transformation and the beauty of God's word. Legalism leads to arrogance, pride, and self-righteousness. Grace leads to humility. Legalism sees a person's sin. Grace sees a person's story. Do you see the difference? Do you see why Christ wants us to stand in his grace and stand on his word both at the same time and walk in the tension and walk in the mess because it's messy? So Jesus goes to the cross, he dies, he's buried, he's resurrected, and when that happens, he fulfills the law. And with that now, we get to walk in grace. Grace is not a license to, to do whatever we want. In fact, there are a whole lot of principles God wants us and commands us to keep. Chuck Swindoll said it this way. He said, the Old Testament law, there were over 600 stated commands. The motivation was, I have to. It was prompted by fear, and it was empowered by the flesh or by willpower. Now, fast forward after the cross. Jesus nails it to the cross. There are hundreds of equally, equally important, specific principles. Don't believe me? Look at the Sermon on the Mount. But now our motivation is, I want to. It's prompted by love, and it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Do you see the beauty of this passage? God placed this passage on my heart to preach today. And I was going to come up with something totally different and landed right here. You see, the issue was man's opinion, man's tradition. Man's tradition caused a beautiful thing to be polluted. And we got to be careful of that. So with that, I want to give you a challenge as we close today. Here's your challenge. Your challenge is this. When you come across a difficult passage, when you come across a difficult thing, specifically legalism, ask yourself three questions. Here, here come the questions. Uh, I talked about them at the beginning. Uh, the first question is, did Jesus teach this? Did Jesus teach it or model it? The second question is, did the disciples, after the resurrection, teach this or model this? And then the third question is, did the New Testament church, that first hundred years of the church, I'm not talking the early church because that goes all the way up to the Reformation. I'm talking about the New Testament church. Did they practice this? And you got to be careful of those answers. This is a great guideline. But here's the thing about this. Do you want to dress up for church? That is amazing. Go for it. You want to name a specific day, a day off? That is awesome. Go for it. But don't let your opinion become somebody's burden. Don't let your opinion become somebody's boundary. Don't let your opinion become somebody's obligation. Walk in grace. Walk in truth. Speak in truth and love. Skagit, going to turn you guys over to Tia and the team. Congratulations. 300 people were in Skagit last week, guys. Can you believe that? Amazing. Yeah, Awesome. Uh, for those of you who attended online, you've you got to stick around for a couple of minutes. And, and for us here, uh, let's go ahead and stand. I want to close us in prayer, and then I'll give you the benediction.
Oh, Heavenly Father, you are so good. Wow, you are so good. God, we could, the, the law was a good thing. It pointed to you. It pointed to the need for sacrifice. It pointed to you, Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you for nailing it to the cross that you fulfilled the law. And now then, as we walk in grace, let us not take that as a license to do whatever we want. Help us, Lord, to walk in truth and love. And when we want to start pointing out someone's sin in their lives, maybe we need to take a, a step back and just breathe. And let's listen to their story. Maybe we need to go to you first and then have that conversation. Lord, no matter what, give us the ability to absorb your word and the courage to live it out with courage and with love. We ask this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Well, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he shine his face upon you. May he shower you with grace and give you great peace this week.